0: Welcome to Litigation Strategies, the podcast that discusses all things litigation. From filing a small claims lawsuit to closing arguments of a murder trial, we dive into handling a case from the beginning until the end. Your hosts are Daniel Koble and Joseph Berry, both former assistant solicitors for the Fifth Judicial Circuit and who are both currently in private practice. And now, this episode of Litigation Strategies. Welcome to Litigation Strategies. My name is Daniel Coble with my co-host Joe Barry as always. Joe, how was your Labor Day weekend?
1: It was a really nice weekend. We went to the zoo, we swam in the pool, we, we went on walks and bike rides. Very, very holistic family good times. So great weekend. How about you?
0: Well, it was a great weekend. I know you're probably a little bit happier than I am. My Clemson team—they played a tough game. They had a great defense but you know didn't get the W. But That's okay. The Gamecocks had a great game with new new quarterback, new coach. You got to be pleased. Yeah,
1: my condolences to the death of your dynasty. I I know the obituaries are are being written, but I I, I didn't check. I'm just waiting for women's basketball season. Don Staley is the best coach in the nation. The Gamecocks have the best program in the nation. Frankly, the successes of the Tigers have have, uh, hindered my ability to even enjoy college football. You can take pleasure in that. but, But no, it's almost women's basketball season. I'm hype. I'm ready, but I heard they played some football this weekend. I don't know. I don't really pay attention to that sport.
0: Well, it was a it was a great game by the Gamecocks. I'm excited about Shane Beamer. I love, as everyone does,
1: Frank Beamer. You got to love him. He's a yeah. Uh, he was at the game. That was cool. Yeah, so, yeah. He yeah, yeah. was sort of cool. grad assistant. The dreams. Please. Your dreams, you know, you just don't know. You gotta keep an open mind to what the universe brings you, is what I like to say. Because, uh, it's an
0: exciting time. It's good, good to see the Gamecocks on their way back. Hopefully, they can keep it up. Hopefully, Eclipse can finish strong throughout the season, which I think they'll do. But we're not here today to talk about football because that would go on for too long. But what we are talking about today is something just as important in the courtroom, which is expert evidence. And it's you, you segue.
1: that's a, you know, you are a professional. You, <laughs> this is, you
0: know every lawyer can segue from any subject to another as long as you just try to, you know, be smooth with
1: it. Your so, Honor, let me, let me tell you about this instead, if you don't mind. Let's we're not talk about that bad thing.
0: Let's talk about the football to rule seven oh two
1: of evidence. So so, no, you, have, and you're right? the expert. You are the expert oh. on evidence. I've got my, my South Carolina lawyer magazine, which is a, a great rag here. And I see a, a, an expert evidence article written by one formerly Honorable Daniel Coble. I got a note on this thing. Did You see on page 45 the, the summary of who you are, the italicized write-up. It says, Daniel Coble is the owner of Coble Law Group, dot, dot, dot. He is the author of the Florida Rules of Evidence and Pocket Prelims. That's true. Florida Rules. Yes, yes. Well, the South Carolina Rules. Well, so I I have
0: several rule books on evidence, but they're not officially published, so I don't claim those because those are independently self-published. But I have two published books. One is Pocket Prelims on Preliminary Hearings, and one is on the Florida Rules of Evidence. And so I was asked this question before. And someone asked about, they saw that and they said, what is this about? And I, yeah, I thought it was a typo. It's got to be a typo. Not a typo. It's not only the Florida Rules of Evidence, but I'm also working on the Texas Rules of Evidence book with a judge out of Dallas. It's a very interesting book. We're still we're in the drafting phase of it. But the way that came about, it's a long story, but just know that it's not a typo. It's the Florida Rules of Evidence. Coming soon is the Texas Rules of Evidence, which we're very excited about. Yeah. Wow.
1: That's, and, that's great. I look forward to seeing them. I'm, although I like South Carolina Rules. Tell, tell me about... So you've got this article out. So tell me about the South Carolina Rules of Evidence. What do I, what do we, the listeners, need to know about the South Carolina Rules of Evidence on uh, expert evidence? Well, the good thing about the South Carolina Rules of Evidence is they almost
0: mirror the federal rules. So that helps if you're practicing in both both courts. And that goes to Florida and Texas. Florida and Texas both follow, generally, the federal rules. So they're very similar to South Carolina. There's obviously different case. But the one of the main... Evidence rules that is used throughout circuit court and federal court is rules 701 through 705, which are the expert, it's 702 through 705, which are the expert evidence rules. And so there was a big case last summer in South Carolina, state v. Phillips. And so what I want to do was to write an article kind of outlining, not just that case, because there's more to it than just a single case, but kind of expert evidence in general, because Joe, you and I were, Assistant Solicitors, and we saw a lot of, throughout trials. You usually always had some type of expert, whether it was oh, about of residue, fingerprints, drugs, a cell phone site location. There was a lot, and so the question when I learned how to 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 you know handle an expert, it wasn't based on the rules as much as here's the standard script and this is kind of how you do it, and it usually works. What I want to do with this article was kind of give. And with other rules of evidence, is kind of see the history behind it, the rule, the purpose of the rule. So you know why you are asking those questions. So, for example, when you have a photograph, you show it to him, you say, is this fairly and accurately represent yada, yada. And those are just a lot of script you always say, but why do you say that? What's the purpose right. of the rule behind it? So when you get tripped up, you can, you know, beyond the script. And so. Evidence is very complicated. and I don't pretend to to know the ins and outs and and be an expert on the expert evidence. Okay. But what I want to give is a general overview. Right, of-
1: disclaimers. We are not experts. You cannot rely on. <laughs> <laughs> there are, you
0: will see disclaimers left and right from us because not a really specialist. Exactly. Well,
1: how many? How many? When you when you served as a magistrate judge, how, how much evidence, expert evidence, did you did you have to deal? Very
0: with? rarely, but people try. So you see it a lot when they try with try to qualify um, a trooper as an expert. So you mm-hmm. saw that quite often. And one of my last civil trials I had, an attorney did qualify his client as an expert in hair beauty uh, products, hair beauty lawn works. You know, she was a beautician and so, Part of that was about how she had messed up you know, someone's hair. And so we needed an expert. And so he laid the f- proper foundation to have her qualified as an expert. And so I don't know if they've seen that before, but it's rare in magistrates court because usually you gotta pay experts. And so you're not doing that in magistrates court. Right. But when you pay them in circuit court, federal court, so that's where they, they come in. You gotta know if you're gonna get them in, get their testimony in and how to, to lay it out. And what I talk about a lot with the rules of evidence, people often don't use them um, that much because you only use them in trial, but the benefit of knowing the rules of evidence and showing people that, you know, the rules is for pre-trial negotiations. If they know that you're trial ready, you know, the objections and you can put a demand letter or something about your expert, why that expert is qualified, why their testimony will be allowed and in witness, kind of sure. yeah. And so I think that's important for pre-trial negotiations to, to know the expert
1: rules. Well, you mentioned the, the, the laying foundation. Can we start with the basics? What, tell us what, when you say laying the foundation, what are you referring to?
0: Well, so when you lay the foundation for just about anything, any evidence you're trying to introduce, you got to kind of give the base of the rule. So usually when you talk about laying the foundation, it's for authentication. So if it's a photograph, you want to let the lay the foundation, this, this witness knows, they have the knowledge to go testify about this object, whatever it may be. The same thing goes with experts. You need to lay the foundation and there's it's broken down in Rule 702. That's the main one. And so what you wanna to look to is not just Rule 702, but as well as case law. And so I'm gonna step back a little bit and kind of go through the brief history to understand where we are and how we got there, so.
1: The history lecture, this so, is so great. So this is, this if you're is
0: driving great. right now, pull over because you will fall asleep and I cannot be held liable for that. So if you wanna fast forward a few minutes. Yeah, so,
1: you know, I like a little history. Why are there pleadings? You know, like, <laughs> before there were rules of procedure, how we did things, yeah, We're so, gonna go back
0: to 1219 with the- <laughs> nine And all of that, so. Okay. Yeah, but what we wanna go back to is 1923. So the okay. Frye standard. We've heard about that from law school what that is versus the Dalbert standard. So Fry from 1923 to 1993 was essentially the experts decided what was, you know, what qualified as an expert, what was in the field. So the judge, instead of saying, you know, looking at the facts based on what they saw in the law and the case law, they would look at the experts and say, is it, is it you know, qualified within that scientific field and kind of defer to the experts. In 1973, the uh, Federal Rules of Evidence. So the are, witness
1: declares that he's the expert. He's like, look, oh, I've read these books. This no, is published.
0: The you expert know, the witness. I, can what I want to say. The witness says, "My friends who are in this field, we all agree that this is legit." So let's say, let's say polygraph. If, if a polygraph examiner gets up there and says, "You know, all of us agree it's accurate and it's, it's been demonstrated, it's been good, it's legit," then you would defer to them under the Fry standard. But in 1973, the federal rules of evidence were adopted, including rule 702, uh, which has been amended, but it essentially says the judge is the gatekeeper. So in 1993, Dalbert came out right. and confirmed. Daubert,
1: he was ingrained in our brains, right? Daubert. Well,
0: if you'll remember, there was a, a federal judge who got Senator John Kennedy a couple of last year. He they asked everyone to raise their hand if they knew what Dalbert was. And one of them you didn't know, and he got you know hung up on it. So I don't... think he's a federal judge now. I don't don't
1: watch C-SPAN as religiously as you do, but I'll I'll, I'll take your word on it.
0: Only C-SPAN 2, that's the better one. (laughs) Just like ESPN 2, it's the better one. So what you have now is you have the the Dahlbert standard came in 1993, and what the Dahlbert standard is, is the judge is the gatekeeper, and you have for scientific expert testimony, what you're looking for, and you can go through kind of the five different factors, which are just general kind of has it been published, what are the results? What are the different factors and what you would want is the expert to test about why this, you know, DNA data, why is DNA reliable? What is Have you been published on this? Has it been published? What are the results? You know, the the testing, the control groups, everything of that nature. And so that's what Dalbert is now go back to South Carolina. So kind of on a parallel track, South Carolina never adopted the fry standard they had in Jones from 1979 was kind of the, the big case that we followed. Fast forward, which wasn't the Fry standard, it was a more liberal standard as they said. So going forward to in 1995, you have the South Carolina rules of evidence adopted, which included, which were very, very similar and still are to the federal rules. And so what you had was the judge is now the gatekeeper essentially. And then 1999 state meet counsel, which is what we all know is the seminal case for expert evidence in South Carolina. It followed very closely and tracked along with Dalbert, but they said, we're not adop- adopting Dahlbert. We're still following Jones and we're adopting these factors. So they kind of were very similar and everyone has always been kind of confused in a sense of, are they the same? Well, the answer is no, by, you know, other courts have said they're similar, but no, they're not the same. And then go to 2020, State v. Phillips. And you had Justice Few writing for the majority came out with, this phrase Dalbert Council hearings. So he kind of combined it into one term. And the question, and the dissent was, you know, disagreed and said that was confusing and that we haven't adopted it. But it appears now that we have essentially adopted Dalbert in substance. So you're looking for those factors with scientific expert testimony. And essentially, we're here today. And what you need to know for laying the foundation are these Dalbert Council hearings. What are the proper things to do so that? your case doesn't get overturned on appeal to make sure that you laid the proper foundation and procedurally that you did it correctly. And so that's what I kind of hit on with this this article. So that you know you skip through the, the old stuff but look to all right what do I need to do for my next case? And so you're looking for you you got three things. You got rule seven oh two, you got counsel factors, and you got rule four oh three. So if you have a science an expert who's scientific in nature so think of dna you have a dna evidence uh, you're trying to get in well if someone's going to give their opinion about the results of that and say yeah that's john smith's dna or that's the victim's dna you got to have an expert to testify about that so what you need to show is that you know first is the subject matter and that is the evidence will assist the trier of the fact and who's the trier of the fact well it's going to be the jury you know the jury The jury need to know this is it outside their scope of knowledge, something they really need uh, to know. And so if it's DNA, then an average juror, I don't, I listen to that stuff and I can't tell what's going on. So yes, it's complicated. It's scientific. It takes training and skill to understand this stuff. But if it's something, you know, like what is the color red? Well, most jurors can figure out what that color is. So you got to think, well, it assists the trier of the fact, which is the jury, unless it's, you know, a bench trial for some reason. And then the next you go to the qualifications. So then you look at that expert, you know, you have Dr. Smith, who wants to tell. We know that DNA is complicated. It's outside the ordinary knowledge and scope of a juror. So we need an expert. All right. So we have this specific expert, Dr. Smith. Is he qualified? What has he done in his career to make him qualified to give his opinion about this DNA? And so that's where you go through and you lay the foundation for him. And you talk about, you know, what his credentials are, his CV. We all often ask about that. You know, what are they qualified in? How many times have they been qualified as an expert have they been published have they written on this have they testified before and, and that's just kind of a you know it when you see it if you have an expert especially if they've done it before they kind of know what to say if they're if they've been qualified multiple times so that's kind of the the straightforward then we get into the reliability by the underlying science mm. so if you're in a field that hasn't been qualified before you know is not that's where you're going to really be arguing those factors Now, if you talk about DNA or fingerprints or something that is normally, you know, been, you know, tried and tested many times, that doesn't really come into play so much
1: because, you know, there's case law there supporting it. Yeah. We had an interesting one, one of the uh, the last trial I I did at the solicitor's office was an animal cruelty trial and some gnarly facts. If you don't want to hear about animal cruelty facts, fast forward a minute, but, but basically there was four deceased dogs that whose desiccated remains were found in a room, roughly put middle of summer. Uh, They've been trapped in there, left behind, died as prosecutors being charged under the felony, four counts um, of cruelty. And part of the facts that you got to prove is the unnecessary pain and suffering. And so we had, we qualified in Dr. Laster, she works at the city of Columbia shelter. She did at the time, but she'd also recently completed a graduate level training course out of the University of Florida in forensic veterinary, uh, veterinary forensics, which is kind of a, a new emerging field. And so we put her up and she talked about the physical impact, you know, when, when dogs don't have food, what happens with their bodies and, and what do they experience? So do so on and so forth. And, and Judge Benjamin was, was the trial judge. And she let us get into all of that, although she stopped us after a point. And I think she made the right decision, but we were trying to get in the, the psychological impacts and there's a whole other world about, you know, of the, what, of the, dogs. Of the dogs. So, okay. you know, under the law, dogs will always be considered chattel. The law, law often reflects that. That's, um, opinions are changing, medical changing, the dogs have, you know, people, the question was one of the questions the defense asked actually had asked was who here views a dog as a family member? Half the prospective jurors raised their hands, you know? So, so attitudes are changing. The law is changing. But still under the law, you know, dogs are property and, and, and recognizing, you know, the pain they suffer, is just a whole nother world. You know, we're talking veterinary malpractice, other things. They just, it's complicated. But anyway, so, so for our trial purposes, I wanted to get into, you know, what dogs are experiencing that the other dogs are dying, that they know. And so for example, Dr. Last when you euthanize at a shelter, you know, you, you don't do that in front of other dogs because it creates stress and it's, it's bad for them. I wanted to kind of analogize with that and, and get into that world that, they were experiencing their each other's suffering and the judge shut us down. There wasn't enough support for that. Dr. Laster didn't have enough documentation studies or, or, you know, support for her experience and opinions on that. And so she stopped us, which is fine because, you know, as a, as a prosecutor, you want to protect your conviction. We got the conviction. We had enough evidence. We didn't need that extra bit. If I had done a better job as a, as a, as a prosecutor, I probably would have done a better job laying that foundation and, and setting her up to testify in that area. But at the end of the day, we didn't need it for the conviction. Judge Benjamin properly didn't let us go there and, and it, it worked out, but that's, uh, that's an emerging field. Veterinary forensics, although you yeah. know, I think the defense had ch- ch- objected to the term forensics, because that just lends this aura of authenticity. Oh, it's a forensic. It must be reliable. It sounds impressive. Right? And that's. That's an, an excellent point, which I also want to talk about. So let's
0: say, let's assume, let's just, for, for our listeners out there, maybe a young attorney who hasn't qualified an expert, they have one in their trial and they, they got to figure out what to do. So if you have an expert, let's say it's a forensic veterinarian like Joe had. So in, let's say you can't find anybody that's been qualified before. So it's a new new field. So what you can expect is the other side to object. They say we object to this for and whatever the reason. So what you need to do, based on State v. Phillips, and this is not legal advice, it's just reading this case, you need a pretrial Dalbert counsel hearing. So yep. this needs to be outside of the presence of the jury, and what you do is that expert needs to go take the stand, and they need to start asking the questions and laying the foundation to hit those factors under Rule 702, which we just talked about, which is subject matter, reliability, and qualifications. And so you want to make sure the subject matter in this case will be, would be outside the what do, do the jurors understand forensics of a veterinarian autopsy whatever that is probably outside their scope so you probably hit check that factor the next would be is this expert qualified in these forensics and so you would go through all of her qualifications what she's been published where she graduated how she studied how she knows this probably qualified check that box the next one is where you're probably gonna have your biggest fight where it's reliability so Is the underlying science of the psychology or the forensics of these animal autopsies, whatever it may be, is it reliable? So the first question you want to ask, is this type of evidence scientific in nature or non-scientific in nature? If it is scientific in nature, which it probably could be, what you would look for, you would go to the council factors. And the council factors are, there are four of them and this is what i wouldn't say this is an exhaustive list i'd say you would look at more stuff but you would want to hit these so the judge to protect yourself on appeal so publications of peer review of this forensic um, science scientific evidence prior application of the method the quality control procedures the consistency of this method so you would go through all those factors and explain to the judge why it is reliable after you do that and the judge says Okay, that is reliable. I, you know, I've seen the, all this testimony about it under oath. What you want to do is you got to do a four hundred three balancing test, yep. which you normally do, but you want to make sure it's too prejudicial. Yeah, and prejudicial versus bad. probative, right? Yeah, and, but the the you shouldn't lose that. Now you could, but you shouldn't because a four hundred three test, the balancing gets the probative value must be substantially outweighed by the prejudicial. So it's already tough to lose a 403 because the burden, it's a high standard for the opposing side. But I would imagine, I talked about this in my CLE, I would imagine it would just be, if you make it through one through three, which is subject matter, expert qualifications, reliability, then it it seems like you've already made it past the prejudicial probative value. Now I could see Joe brought a good point where even if that forensic veterinarian, you know, was qualified and everything, where that would be very prejudicial, especially when you're talking about the dogs and yep. suffering. But if you have to prove that element, then it's very probative. And that's kind of a side note. We talk about uh, this v. cross. Where you talk about where you have two of these forces that are both equal against each other. That's a, that's a different note. But one thing that's very important, which as a judge, I would always do when I had an expert, I would always find out exact and I'll make the presenting the person you know offering this witness to tell me what that specific field is that they are qualified in because while right. they're testifying, you're going to get an objection and if you're a defense or you're on the other side, you're going to look for this objection where they are testifying outside the scope of their knowledge or their qualified field. So what you can do as a judge you know or as an, the other attorney is write down that specific field. So when they start getting to, as Joe alluded to, the psychology or something that they're not qualified in, or that was not a factor for the right reliability, that's something you object to, that they're outside that scope. And so they need to stay within what they're qualified for. And frankly, you want to protect your case, as Joe said, on appeal. You want to make sure they didn't get outside of it. This happened on a recent, I believe it was a court of appeals case in the past couple of years where, Joe, when we had drug cases, you would have someone, you know, law enforcement talk about their experience about, you know, drugs and how they were qualified. And so, which is fine. They can talk about that. But in this case, and I'd have to go look up for specifics, the law enforcement officer was qualified and expert in, you know, drugs and you know drug enforcement. But then he started talking about the weight of the, the marijuana. And so to talk about the actual weight is very specific, right? You need to be an expert about that. And so he wasn't qualified as an expert. And I believe the case, they overturned that. I can't remember if they overturned the case, but they, they hit them on that because it was outside of their scope. And so you, you might have won the day in the trial, but you lost that battle overall. And so you want to make sure they're testifying within their specific field. And you just want to make sure you check the boxes and follow this pre-trial Dahlberg counsel hearing to protect your case. Sounds easy enough, right? So that is expert evidence. Simple enough. It's, and what you can do is you can let the other side know that you were prepared. That's all. That's half the battle is letting them know that you're ready to go. And, and Joe, what's the most important thing when cross-examining an expert?
1: I mean, don't challenge them. I read your article. I had, I would have no idea how to answer, but I read your article. I learned a lot and now I can come prepared like a good student. Well, don't tell
0: me. Don't outsmart the expert. You will never out-expert the expert. Yeah. You'll never right. do it because they know the field, they know it so well. Now, I'm sure there's probably a veteran attorney out here who said, you know, who's done before, if you're a young attorney, don't make the mistake of trying to out-expert the expert in their field. Have a strategy where it can be, you agree with everything they say, but it might not apply. So we had murder cases where we you had the forensic all-time the and they didn't ask any questions because everyone agreed how the person died. It was I mean, just who did it you know something different so know your strategy with well, the, the
1: other cross tip too and this is the credit to Margaret Bodman not that it's original but it's she certainly drilled it in me as a young prosecutor is you know a concession based cross where you're you know, you're not asking the ultimate question you're just you know picking out little bits picking out little bits and then you know you save your ultimate conclusions for your close you don't want to ask the expert or the the, the witness you're crossing to to give the conclusion no, you you just get the little pieces out. You pick out their errors. You pick out the small bits, and then you, uh, yeah, and then you sum it up later outside their presence.
0: Exactly, and so yeah, you don't want that expert to to ruin your case because because when and you see this, you know, looking at jurors when when someone has the title of expert, um, jurors they give them more credibility, and you know the judge will give an instruction that you know they it's just their opinion. It doesn't you know mean they're better, It just means they're qualified, but. As jurors, when someone says they're an expert, you know, that carries a lot of weight. And that's why people fight it so much. And you, you got to be careful before you qualify someone as an expert because it gives them that extra credibility, that extra bump right there that can, you know, affect a case. And that's why people pay a lot of money for experts. You know that. You see that a lot.
1: You know, you you get what you pay for, right? But uh, although which really brings into question the, the quality of this podcast. It's free, right? So I don't know. I don't know what you're getting here, but I can tell you this. We're not experts, but but but... Can we give another disclaimer just to be careful? We need to have that disclaimer. But it is a great this article. This not Danielle. legal
0: advice. Do not rely on this. This is merely information. There's another <laughs> disclaimer. You know we're attorneys when we have to say that every 10 minutes.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Well, we certainly so, appreciate y'all listening and, and tuning in. We thank y'all for being here. We look forward to the next episode. Um, and hopefully the Tigers and the Dancocks, they both you know, pull it out next time. Yeah, East Carolina is going to be tough. We'll see. All right. Thanks, guys. Woo!